This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its 6 year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Film Show. Today is Tuesday, October 24th, 2023. On today's episode of the show, we are going to be talking about the latest film and TV news. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film staff writer and box office analyst, Ryan Scott. Hey, hey everyone. How's it going? Uh, Ryan, I want to apologize to our listeners for not having an episode last Thursday. I got COVID last week and was down for the count. Uh, I missed a couple days of work. Um, I'm doing better now, but as you can probably hear it in my voice, it's not. I'm not like a hundred percent back to you know to full strength. And I apologize if I'm like coughing or anything during this episode. I'll try my best to edit all that stuff out as much as possible. So, uh, anyway. Um, to our longtime listeners, I just wanted to say sorry about that, and hopefully we won't have any more interruptions uh, coming up in the meantime or, or anytime in the future. Um, all right, Ryan, let's get into it. I, I want to move the box office stuff to the back half of the show on today's episode because there was some big news that broke uh, yesterday afternoon slash evening, and that is the new Mission Impossible movie has been delayed by about a full year. Um, it's now going to be opening in 2025. Dead Reckoning Part 2 was, last we heard, supposed to open on June 28th of next year, and it's now going to be opening in, oh, let's see, what's the actual date here? May 23rd, 2025. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, a big blow to Paramount's release calendar, certainly. Um, at a big blow to anybody who was you know, hoping to get some resolution to the uh, uh, quasi-cliffhanger ending of Dead Reckoning Part 1. Um, thoughts about this, Brian? Any, uh, does this surprise you at all? Um, I mean, it doesn't surprise me in so much as like you can't rush a movie of this scale, and they weren't nearly done filming it. And with the actor strike still going, there's their hands are tied. You mm-hmm. know, there's nothing they can do. So um, I do think that McQuarrie, Christopher McQuarrie, the director and Tom Cruise and everyone involved would have rethought that ending if they didn't think they were going to be able to get this thing out, you know, like the following summer, because that is a hell of a way to sort of leave leave a thread dangling and then you've got to wait two years. I mean, that's, that's, pr- that's a bit of a big ask, I think for the audience. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And I got to imagine there's some cost uh, associated with this as far as just like, you know, holding the actors. Cause I mean, I, I, I don't know how holding deals and stuff work, but other people, as I've read a bunch of stuff that there's going to be a bunch of issues once the actor strike does get resolved, as far as scheduling and stuff goes for a listers, figuring out who gets priority, this, that, or the other thing. So there might be some cost incurred. Yeah. I don't know. And as we talked about a lot, mission impossible dead reckoning part one was 
overly expensive. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, there's some complications there. But yeah, I think this kind of, it's unfortunate as a fan of these movies, it's unfortunate from a commercial perspective, it's unfortunate for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Um, one interesting sort of tidbit that came out with the uh, information about the re- uh, delayed release date is that the title for this movie is going to be changing. So uh, apparently Paramount is dropping Dead Reckoning Part 2 from the title. So, I, I mean, I think we can all assume that means that when Dead Reckoning Part 1 finally gets, you know, a... a physical release if it hasn't already actually um it it's just going to be retitled to mission impossible dead reckoning and then whatever the new title is is going to take precedence for this the sequel um but uh yeah just sort of a fascinating thing because like we may have talked about this when the film underperformed a little bit like including the words part one in a title uh it's a little bit of a risky move on the studio's part because you're basically telling the audience right up front this is only half a movie. Um, you know, I think Avengers, uh, one of the Avengers movies, if not several of the Avengers movies at, at certain points in their development had like a part one and part two, um, in, you know, there there were, were, uh, discussions at one point about including part one and part two in the, in that title. Same thing for, uh, Spider-Man, uh, across the Spider-Verse. I think they, they were considering a part one, part two type of situation and ended up not going with that. Um, Mission Impossible stuck with that. So they sort of like, uh, you know, incurred the consequence of having the part one, but now they're, you know, they, they've already sort of like suffered the consequence of, of yeah. making that decision. And and now they're changing the plan kind of halfway through the, the, um, the game plan a little bit or whatever. So I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that. Well, you're right. Uh, Avengers, what became Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame were actually like announced as uh, part one and part two. Um, And so like that was straight up like announced publicly before they walked that back. And uh, the first trailer for Across the Spider-Verse had a part one subtitle. The only thing I'll say selfishly, and I'm sure you'll agree here, is people have to write about this stuff all the time. And we're trying to craft headlines around a title as long as Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. It would have been really (laughs) nice for them to drop that Part 1 for us. Um, You know, but uh, that's, hey, you know, whatever. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. You know, that that, that's a bit uh, whatever. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, we'll see. Hopefully they can, you know, find a way to make this all work. I, I think Christopher McQuarrie has has pulled some real magic over the years as far as getting some of these movies where they need to be. And, you know, look, let's not be little things. I, they, the movie, the first one made 567 million worldwide. That's a good number for, uh, you know, the seventh movie in a series of expensive blockbusters. So if they mm-hmm. can somehow like, cause I know we talked a little bit about that first budget. They had apparently shot some of part two. So some of that budget might count toward the second one. So if they can kind of rein things in a little bit, I still have a lot of hope, but I just think that year delay that that hurts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, as you mentioned, the strike is, is being uh, sort of blamed as the, the prime, the prominent uh, primary reason for why this delay is happening. Uh, another movie that has been as has suffered a, a recent delay is Deadpool three, um, which I believe was supposed to come out in May of 2024 and is now, I believe completely off of the release calendar. I don't think they have uh, set a release date yet because they're sort of, in Disney and, and Fox are sort of in like a wait and see mode in terms of like whether or not the uh, 
uh, SAG after strike is resolved quickly because then they might be able to just make it a, a short delay. If it's a longer uh, resolution with the strike, they might have to push that back into 2025 as well. So um, yeah, th there's there's a lot of uncertainty still. Um, we do know that uh, SAG AFTRA and the studios, the the AMPTP, are sitting back down at the negotiating table again uh, as of today. So that's potentially good news. I mean, it's certainly a step in the right direction. They had they had broken uh, talks recently um, because yeah. uh, things had had sort of yeah come to an impasse. Uh, but now they're they're getting back to the table, so that's a good sign. Um, yeah, I think the Deadpool three thing is brutal because they had originally moved that release date up because that was the movie that was like the closest to finished. And then, you know, now, like, you know, you're maybe looking at the first half of next year without a Marvel movie at all, which is interesting. And I had heard because I think Captain America four finished principal photography. Oh, interesting. Uh, okay. I've seen now this is very unsubstantiated, but I if that's true, it's easy to believe. I've seen a little bit of buzz that they might move Captain America four up. Okay. Uh, but but again, that's that is not I'm making a huge disclaimer that is. <laughs> unsubstantiated yeah, yeah. at this point but but again more headaches for marvel because if these movies set up other movies you're kind of having to rearrange things and maybe have to re-edit things re-whatever to try to make it work and so i you know i don't yeah it and, at all. and we've seen what happened uh when the pandemic threw their schedule into complete and utter chaos and they had to shift shows and movies and things like that too and i think the the overall drop in quality and like uh the the uh iron grasp that they had on pop culture dominance over the past 15 years has slowly started to loosen i think um and and certainly the pandemics uh you know throwing everything into chaos uh, played a part in that so um yeah we'll see how how uh, severe those consequences are uh as well um there was an interesting thing that came up uh, a few days ago about several big Hollywood stars, like A-list stars, were coming together and they they um, created a proposal to help end the strike. And I was kind of down for the count uh, with COVID at the time, so I didn't get a chance to like fully you know dive into the details on this. But I know that you wrote an article about this for Slash Film, and I was wondering if you could just walk me through like the broad strokes of what that was. Yeah, so I will say since this came out, um, SAG After's leadership kind of came out and were like, "Hey, we appreciate this." But like this doesn't really like solve the contract issue. Like I so like basically it's like thanks for the gesture, but this doesn't really, you know, like solve anything. You see, I don't understand the total inner workings of it. But anyway, I, at this point, if nothing else, this demonstrates the 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 point that we're at where like everyone wants this to be over with. So what happened is uh, um last week, uh almost exactly a week ago bunch of A-list stars, a group that included George Clooney, Emma Stone, Ben Affleck, Tyler Perry, and Scarlett Johansson. And uh, if you think of people that have a lot of money, Tyler Perry should be one of the first people that comes to your mind. Like people do not <laughs> realize how much money Tyler Perry has. Um, uh, like you talk about FU money, that's a guy that has FU money. So like if he's at the point where he's like, all right, we got to do something, you know, um, so what the, there, what the, what, what it was, they, they essentially went to the SAG leadership with a proposal and their proposal was to remove, there's currently a million dollar cap on SAG membership dues. So essentially everyone who's a member of the Screen Actors Guild, they pay dues every year. And then that goes to like, you know, funding their, uh, uh, retirement funds, medical funds, all these things that you get as being a part of SAG. Well, they were like, cool, let's take that cap off so that like the top earners pay 
more and the idea that this would essentially contribute an extra $50 million or so annually that could potentially take some burden off of studios having to contribute to some of these things. And, uh, you know, so like $150 million over the life of this three-year contract is just what the the terms are typically. Um, so, you know, that, that uh, Clooney even released a statement to Deadline saying a lot of top earners want to be a part of the solution. We've offered to remove the cap on dues, which would bring in over $50 million to the union annually, well over $150 million over the next three years. We think it's fair for us to pay more into the union. We also are suggesting a bottom-up residual structure, meaning the top of the call sheet would be the last to collect residuals, not the first. These <clears throat> negotiations will be ongoing, but we wanted to show that we're all in this together to find ways to help close to get close the gap on getting actors paid. And as mentioned in that statement, as the other part of this is that streaming residuals, as we know, are a big sticking point here. Well, the top earners are offering, okay, we get paid last. You pay those people who need the money more first. Mm -hmm. And so, but again, you know, this doesn't necessarily solve the actual points on the contract that are in contention. So, you know, but right. it does demonstrate that these people are willing to be like, hey, we're willing to take money out of our pocket for the next three years to get this thing done. And, yeah. you know, that, I mean, the thing the thing there, like what I sort of postulated a little bit is that like, yeah, like people like Ben Affleck, people like Clooney, these, and Tyler Perry, who runs basically a whole network and has like, you know, so much going on, like they're going to lose more money by having these things delayed than they will by paying a little bit more every year. So, mm -hmm. you know, they have a lot of motivation to get this thing done. Yeah, and also like, they're the ones who are making or who are or, or who have historically made a ton of money before. And like, you know, a, a SAG is like, there, I think I want to say there's like over 100,000 people in the Screen Actors Guild. And a majority of those are not um, name actors that everybody recognizes, right? They're, they're like the actors who are in the trenches working in commercials and working in, you know, uh, small roles on TV shows where you don't know, you know, who these people are. So like, there's um there's an optics angle of this too for people like Affleck and you know some Clooney whoever these these big name people to say hey we know you know we're the ones who are ultra rich right now and that there are a lot of people who are suffering in this guild who have not worked for a hundred plus days at this point and we want to try to do something about that so I, I think you know it, it's a it's a good opt it was a good optical move it was a good uh potentially strategic move although yeah as you mentioned the guild released a statement after uh that proposal came up that said uh this generous concept is worthy of consideration but it is in no way related to and would have no bearing on this present contract or even as a subject of collective bargaining it is in fact prohibited by federal labor labor law so uh, it seems like somebody maybe didn't do all the all the research they needed, but like I appreciate the the gesture certainly. Um, well, but it I, does seem like, in fairness, like a couple days after that, talks, you know, were like, okay, cool, we'll meet up again. So, you know, maybe it got the ball moving in the right direction. I don't know, but I yeah, mean, it does, yeah, could have. If anything, it's a signal of like everyone's like, let's get this, let's just be done with this. You yeah, know? like yeah, because yeah. so we'll see. But so one of the. Um, the studios, obviously, that the actors are, are striking against is Netflix. And um, I wanted to mention that there's this, uh, this news story that came out about Netflix is uh, set to open some physical stores um, with like theme park-esque elements. And we don't have exactly like a ton of the details here, but we know that they are gearing up to launch a series of physical locations that will combine retail and dining with live entertainment based on its exclusive films and TV shows. And these uh, stores are supposed to be opening sometime in 2025. So um, again, you know, 
what does that mean? Is there going to be a uh, a Bridgerton stage show happening while you're eating dinner in a Netflix restaurant? Maybe, uh, maybe a Stranger Things show. I mean, Stranger Things is actually getting a like a Broadway esque, like a, a full on. Yeah, stage Stranger Things has a has a stage show that's like a prequel to the next season or something like that. Like it's yeah. it's actually kind of like significant. Yeah. Um, so like maybe there's going to be um, for other Netflix properties or or things like that, you know, more of a, seems like more of like a dinner theater type of thing. Like, a yeah. Uh, or like even like interactive installments or something. I don't have any issue with that. I mean, like as a guy who loves theme parks, this seems interesting enough to me, but it's like, I, you know, and I've, and I've argued for a long time, Netflix needs to diversify its revenue stream. The biggest problem with Netflix right now is they are only a streaming service for the most part. Like these other studios, if their streaming services collapse, they'd be in trouble, but they have a ton of other revenue from other places, you know? Mm-hmm. So like, I understand, but it's like, I'm just like, is this really the thing? I don't know. Like, this just, is this going to work? Like, I don't know if Netflix, I mean, cause I, I mean, there's certain shows I'm, I could see like Netflix making money with like stranger things, like a ride or a, I don't know what, like, but I, this also seems tremendously expensive to invest in, which is the other complicated part. Yeah, they, I mean, I know that Netflix has been slowly making some moves outside of streaming. Like they've been investing a lot in mobile games recently. I think they opened um, some sort of merchandise shop or something like that. Um, and but yeah, like they, they've they've been looking at like the Disney or Universal uh, model for years, but have yet to actually like break ground on like an official Netflix theme park or anything. You know, that stuff is, still seems a long way off. But this idea of um, of them like expanding their tentacles a little bit. Like they, they've done this, I think it was last year they opened, or maybe it was even earlier this year, they opened a, um, a pop-up restaurant in LA called Netflix Bites. That was like, you could go in there and get food that was like, um, you know, cooked by the chefs who were on chef's kitchen or chef's table or some of the, the yeah, cooking yeah, shows yeah. and stuff that were on Netflix. So like they've, they've like dipped their toe in this a little bit before. Um, so it seems like they're, they're, I don't know, confident enough to expand that. Who knows exactly like how many stores are thinking about opening. This could just be like a, Hey, we're going to open four stores in New York and LA or yeah, whatever. That's going like, to just be in like big markets or whatever. But like, I tell you, I tell you what makes this good. Open these physical stores and in like the gift shop or whatever, sell Blu-rays of like your movies and stuff. Like, oh, just yeah. put, like That'd be cool. Like, just like, I, there's no way they're going to do it. But like, I, you know, cause like I had a buddy text me the other day. He's like, uh, there's Mike Flanagan, one of his early movies called Hush, which originally went to Netflix. It was like, hey, is that literally not streaming anywhere? I'm like, nope, Netflix took it off. It never got a Blu-ray release. It is available nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, like, it's just like, yeah, just give me an opportunity to buy these things and I will go visit your whatever this is going to be called. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it makes sense too, because like Netflix has still, they've, they've done pretty dang good in the streaming wars. And like, they're still uh, the only streamer, I think, that is like, uh, seems to be sitting kind of quasi pretty right now um, with their recent like uh, you know um, investor calls and all that kind of stuff. Like all these other studios are seem to be hurting a little bit. And Netflix has become like the you know obviously like the dominant streaming uh, name in streaming. Like everybody kind of has them, and there's all this speculation about what's going to happen and consolidation and all that kind of stuff that we talked about in the past. But it doesn't seem like Netflix has to worry about that because they were kind of first out of the gate and they they took the biggest bite out of the apple and they they uh, have sort of made their mark in, in a bigger way than all these other streamers. So um, they certainly have like the, the name brand recognition and all that kind of stuff to 
potentially open a bunch of stores across the country, across the world, even maybe if they want to. Um, and, uh, and yeah, maybe like reap some, some rewards that way. So we'll have to see what, what these actually turn into, if it's anything more than just like the equivalent of like the Disney store or something. But, uh, but yeah, I'll be curious. To I see. mean, Hey, don't knock the Disney store. That brings them a lot of money. So yeah. <laughs> you never yeah, yeah. know. Um, okay. All right. Let's take a quick break and then we'll get into some box office stuff. All right, Ryan, let's get into it. Um, Killers of the Flower Moon, uh, Martin Scorsese's most recent movie, opened this past weekend. I was devastated to realize that I had COVID because, uh, A, I don't want COVID, but B, uh, I couldn't go see this movie in theaters. And I'm, I'm hoping that I improve quickly and uh, this movie sticks around long enough for me to, to go see it in theaters. And Apple doesn't yank it out of theaters and put it on its streaming service. Uh, on its streaming service. I'm not sure what its uh, plans are for the, the release. Um but I'm hoping that I can see this on the big screen at some point. But uh, how did this movie perform at the box office, Ryan? Uh, so, yeah, we'll kind of go over the top two here and then we can circle back to. But uh, so Taylor Swift, the Eras tour took the number one spot again. Um, so that was but that was always like a foregone conclusion of some, you know what I mean? It, it, Killers of the Flower Moon was never sort of pegged as like, hey, we're going to beat Taylor Swift. Like, even when this release date was originally put, I, I you know, I don't know that they, anyway. But um, yeah. th- this Did you worked see in, the Taylor Swift movie, by the way? I still haven't gotten around to it. Uh, okay. I'm hoping to maybe this upcoming week, but um, I will be covering Austin Film Festival for us. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, keep an eye for coverage there. But um, but yeah, so, so I think this was always like, this was like a perfect counter-programming situation, right? Like, I talk about that all the time. I just don't think you're going to have a lot of people deciding between these movies. I think that like the people that want to go see Killers of the Flower Moon, we're going to go. People that want to see the Air Store, we're going to go. So Killers of the Flower Moon took number two. It is produced by Apple. Paramount Pictures is distributing the movie. So they're just getting like a distribution fee. They're not like a financial partner beyond that, uh, as is my understanding. So Killers of the Flower Moon debuted at uh, uh, number two, opened to $23.2 million domestically. Um, it is one of the highest opening weekends of Scorsese's career. Um, uh, it's kind of sandwiched between like the departed and shutter Island, which was his biggest, uh, internationally it made $21 million. And that was actually the biggest movie overseas this weekend, uh, uh actually beating the Eras tour overseas. There's a bit of a caveat to that in that, like a uh, killers of the flower moon open in 63 territories. So it really doesn't have much room to expand after this weekend so like that's kind of like that was the rollout like that was it was just like kind of a global drop um so overall debuted to 44 million dollars um for an r-rated movie uh with like brutal subject matter that is three hours and 26 minutes long i think that's pretty good Mm -hmm. uh the elephant in the room which we've talked about the movie's got a 200 million dollar budget so you know, traditional movie math would tell you, well, this is rough, but this is not a traditional situation. Apple is not expecting this to profit in theaters. So Mm -hmm. it's complicated. We still don't know what the metrics are for these, for like Apple and Amazon when they release a movie in theaters, what are they hoping to get out of it? Because like, let's not, let's not like sugarcoat this. Netflix has released a ton of $200 million movies direct to streaming with no box office to speak of. Mm -hmm. So there, there must be some break even there, but now you're sort of like making some of that money back. So I don't know. It's, it's very complicated as far as what the, 
what what is considered success for them. But, you know, so that's where we're at right now. So what would you say needs to happen for Killers of the Flower Moon to become a hit? You actually have an article about this very subject. I do. I kind of just broke down like because, again, a lot of this is guesswork. Like I, I, I sort of. My best sort of estimation for this, and I talked about this a bit when Air came out earlier this year, the Ben Affleck Nike movie, um, because I think that was a good example of like Amazon put that movie out. It basically made its budget at the box office, right? And I think that probably for them is like, then that brought a lot more attention to the streaming release. And I think that's probably sort of my mark for success. Mm -hmm. Uh, Killers of the Flower Moon has an A minus cinema score, which is excellent for a movie like this. Uh, There's no word yet on the Apple TV plus streaming date, but it does seem like they actually intend to keep this in theaters exclusively for a bit. I think that's part of the reason Paramount agreed to distribute. So let's say it's like at least a month. Of, of exclusivity in theaters or something. I mean, so you could conceivably get to, you know, like on the absolute best, like if this thing legs out like 250 worldwide would be my, I'm not, you know, again, prognostication, not totally my thing, but I, so mm-hmm. I'd say if this could get, but if this could get to, let's say 200 million worldwide, and then that gets you in the Oscar conversation, you're almost guaranteed a best picture nomination, you know, and then like, let's say it goes on to win Best Picture like Coda did. I mean, then I think Apple's very happy, Yeah. Um. you know, and especially if they do agree to do some kind of physical release, like through Criterion or whatever, you might make some money that way. Obviously, it brings a lot of attention to Apple TV Plus. So I think like if you look at the entire sort of picture, if it can kind of match that budget theatrically, I think that sort of might constitute success for them. But again, that is me just sort of doing my best. Yeah, sort of look at the business as best as I can because yeah, this, I mean, is, it, this is new territory. Yeah, and it sort of seems like um, Apple is in it for the intangibles a little bit too. Like they obviously they're one of the most successful companies in the world. They have so much money that there's been discussions about them potentially buying Disney at some point. I don't know if that's ever actually going to happen or not, but still they have a ton of money is the point. Um, so like they don't need to necessarily play by the exact same rules as everybody else right now. So I think they're they're sort of intangible quality that they're going after is like, you know, the rest of Hollywood was, um, was not willing to give this legendary master filmmaker the money that he needed to tell this important story, but we were, and we want to be in business with DiCaprio and De Niro. And we want the acclaim and the sort of like, uh, prestige sheen that comes with this thing. And we want people to, to, be driven to Apple TV plus to find it because absolutely as much as people talk about how great, you know, the programming is on Apple TV plus, I still think if you look at the, um, you know, outside of Ted Lasso or something like that, like a, you know, their, their big notable hit, um, they have not necessarily had the same impact in the streaming game as even, you know, Max or, um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of like where I would put them on the well the i think of, the thing uh, is like pole, they also don't put out as much stuff like they're pretty selective about what they're putting out but i think like the quality like yeah. I, the most people i talk to they're like look there there aren't a lot of stinkers on apple tv plus like the stuff they're putting out is good yeah you know like even if you look at like oh god why am i uh prehistoric planet did you watch that the like the 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 like dinosaur documentary they did with like, I've uh, not seen it. I saw a, cl- a couple clips going viral. Like I want to say it was like last year or something, but um, it, it looked good. Like the CG looked pretty good. Right, right. But so even, even something like that. So I think the point is you're absolutely right. And I think the other thing is like Netflix made the Irishman, which was Chris Casey's last three and a half hour epic that he couldn't get money from a studio for. 
now Netflix put that thing in theaters, but like it was very few theaters and it was pretty much just enough to qualify for awards. Like, and a lot of people were like kind of irritated by that. I think there's an element of this, like that Apple was like, all right, Scorsese, we're going to, we're not only going to give you like a theatrical, we're going to give you that theatrical lease that this deserves. So I think Mm -hmm. there's an element of like, sort of, sort of, like signaling to other filmmakers that like, yeah, not only are we going to do this, we're going to do this right. Yeah. You know, so I think, so this is maybe a bit of a statement piece for them as well. Um, and, uh, you know, um, yeah, so I, so I agree with all that, but so so there's a lot to take into account because this is sort of like a new model of distribution that's emerging, like particularly with like Apple and, and Amazon. And, and I'm very much in favor. I really hope this works. Like, I hope it works for what they need it to do because, like these are great movies that I don't know they'd get made otherwise, but they are getting the release they deserve. And I'm like, I'm really hopeful this works. Yeah. I mean, who knows how long the viability might be in the eyes of these companies, but like in the meantime, I'm happy to reap the rewards of seeing master filmmakers get the budgets that they need to make the movies that they want. But I think that, but I think that like, okay, if you look at what Netflix did with the Irishman, I'm not here to talk about what you think about that movie, but from Netflix's standpoint, Spending, I think they spent $220 million on that movie. It made nothing in theaters. Like, let's relative to that budget, it made absolutely nothing. And it it got completely shut out at the Oscars. It was streamed a lot, yes, but like, did that constitute that level of investment for them? I don't know. With Apple, let's say this thing does make $200 million worldwide, pay Paramount whatever their fee is, you they could conceivably get about $100 million of that back, which which covers about half of that monster budget. Mm-hmm. So like that, not only did like, so that really makes this much more sustainable for them as opposed to just doing it the way that like streaming services had been doing it. So I see this as a way to actually make these more continually viable as opposed to just like the way Netflix had been doing it. Yeah. And I think Netflix with the, the uh, with the Irishman, they were so nakedly ambitious and nakedly going after best picture and that ended up not happening with that movie and it would just be kind of hilarious again if apple ends up winning best picture for killers of the flower moon because yeah but let's not but let's not i think apple might have learned something because coda won best picture but i also think a lot of people were like wait what now because that was one of those ones that kind of got dumped to apple tv plus a bit more quietly and i think that like had that had a theatrical release it probably would have done pretty well because yeah. i know they did like a couple of weekends in theaters after it won which is when i went to go see it but like, but yeah, so I think that they might have sort of taken a bit of a lesson from that and like, okay, if we have something we really think is an awards winner, we're going to go ahead and like, we're going to, we're going to give that thing the platform it deserves. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, I'm, you know, I'm hopeful for more of that in the future. Cause like, I, I think what Apple has done, I think like some of the movies they put out, like they put out that Beastie Boys documentary, which I thought was amazing, you know, like their hit ratio is good here. And I, and, and, you know, fortunately they're not in a situation where like they need these to make money. Totally. They just need them to not be like complete financial like disasters. <laughs> yeah. Um, so speaking of something that is not a financial disaster, I, I don't think, or m- maybe I'm wrong about that, Ryan. Uh, the Exorcist Believer has passed $100 million at the box office. And I think, you know, we had talked a lot about the um, box, box office prospects of that movie and like the fact that the company behind it spent all of this money for the rights to the Exorcist and, and making 
three movies and all of that kind of stuff. Still, like $100 million is nothing to sneeze at at the box office. So like, what's your take on where that movie is right now and, and what it needs to do and and sort of like what it's, uh, yeah, I guess it's current status is in your mind. Yeah, it's so complicated. Like this is another one of those like situations where like if you look at the movie itself, okay, it's a $30 million production budget. It's at $107 million worldwide with an almost dead even 50-50 split between domestic and international. That's fantastic for a horror movie. Like, And so it's probably going to finish with like at least 125 worldwide. I guess if things go very well, it could probably get closer to like 140. You know, so like, so that's, you know, I, I think if you had told, you told Blumhouse Universal, hey, we're going to make one Exorcist movie. We're going to give you a $30 million budget and it's going to make that worldwide before it even goes to Peacock or anything else or VOD. That's, mm-hmm. that's absolutely a home run. Like you take that, you absolutely take that. The problem is, as we discussed, the movie has like a C minus cinema score, which is brutal. You know, it's, it's, it's got like a 50, uh, like, like, like an, or like a 50% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. Forget the critic score, which is brutal. So, you know, I think, like, and I even anecdotally can tell you, I went to go to this donut place with my girlfriend over the weekend and we were just talking to someone who had like a Freddy Krueger shirt on and her husband was like, yeah, I went and saw that new exorcist. It sucked. You know what I mean? Like, so there's a lot of like your average person doesn't seem to be responding to this movie. Mm-hmm. So the bigger problem is that with that sequel that's coming out in 2025, you then have to say, yeah, this is connected to that movie you didn't like, or maybe didn't even see. So you're still overcoming that. Now for people that maybe didn't listen to a couple episodes ago, Universal made a $400 million deal with Morgan Creek to make this trilogy and they must make the entire trilogy so far as I understand it. Um, So yeah, this movie did okay, but the fact that it was not well received is going to really complicate things for the next two movies. So that still remains true. So I don't know. You can obviously pivot creatively. I know the next movie was supposed to be very much connected to this one. It's possible they abandon that a bit, maybe rewrite the script, maybe get a new script entirely. Maybe you kind of save it that way. I don't know. So it's it's still a bit of a mixed bag for sure. I think the one thing that you can guarantee is that Blumhouse only should take so much of the brunt here because they kind of did their job. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, they weren't the ones that said, you know, hey, like, go spend $400 million on this. Like Universal was like, hey, we're going to make this deal. Can you make these movies? And Blumhouse mm-hmm. was like, yes. And they did. And they did their part. So complicated is is the word i would still use yeah um okay so a couple other box office stories that i wanted to touch on real quick um the nightmare before christmas has come back to theaters for its what is it 30th anniversary 30th anniversary okay so and and this movie performed fairly well at the box office right i would say more than fairly well for a 30th for a 30th anniversary release and by the way this is like this was not like highly advertised. This wasn't like the Jurassic Park 20th anniversary release where it was like, you know, trailers and stuff. You know, they basically announced it online and were like, go see it if you want. Made $4.1 million, ended up in the top five for the weekend. Uh, fascinating here is that this movie came out in 1993. It was like a modest success at the time at a $24 million budget. I did not realize this. The movie made $50 million worldwide in its original release. It has now made over the life of the movie, $95.3 million. Almost all of that has come from these re-releases over the years. Like the, the um, I think it was the 2006 uh, 3D re-release, or not 2006, but yeah, that made $11 million alone. So this like, what's crazy here is 
30 years after the release, depending on how this does in the next week or two in this re-release, Nightmare Before Christmas could pass $100 million worldwide 30 years after its original release, and half of that money would have come from re-releases. Wow. Kind of amazing. <laughs> uh, it speaks volumes about this movie's enduring audience. I think this isn't just 90s kids. This movie has found audiences like year after year after year. You know, I mean, I know that this has been talked to death, but like, if I were Disney, I would beg Henry Selleck and or Tim Burton to make a sequel to this right now. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know. Um, it may be, maybe people would say that's creatively bankrupt, but I feel like that would just make a fortune. So I don't know. Uh, but yeah, that's pretty <laughs> impressive. Okay. Uh, and the other box office story that I wanted to get on uh, real quick is the um, Five Nights at Freddy's movie, which has been in the works for what feels like years at this point. Almost a and, decade. Uh, Wow. Okay. So it really had, man, that's longer than I even had it in my mind. Um, yeah, yeah. Wow. That's, that's wild. Um, okay. So it's finally coming out. Uh, I think it's this week, right? So uh, yeah. how is it looking? Um, what are the prospects you think? Uh, you know, I hate to use the word complicated again, but like uh, the, the, this movie is getting a simultaneous Peacock release along with the theatrical release, uh, much like Halloween kills and Halloween ends. Again, this is a Blumhouse production being released by universal pictures. However, uh, a lot of uh, people like in uh, older folks may not realize how big of a deal this is to the younger generation. Five Nights at Freddy's is tremendously popular uh, and kids are going to turn out for this thing. So what we're looking at right now is about 30 million on the very low side. This movie's going to make 30 million dollars. Even if it like comes in at the absolute bottom end of expectations, it has a 20 million dollar budget. And according to Jason Blum, that budget's already been covered by um selling the streaming rights and some other stuff so like basically the second it any the first dollar it makes is going to be profit um now box office pro has it going as high as 60 million dollars so we could be looking at like what would essentially be like the next big like horror sensation here uh yeah. and and again this is with the peacock release uh, so you know, it's probably going to bring a lot of attention to Peacock, probably going to draw a lot of subscribers there. I think that was a mistake. I think this should have been an exclusive theatrical release, at least for a couple of weeks. But either way, it looks like this is going to be I think this is going to do bigger business than anyone thinks it's going to do. And I think I would not be surprised if we hear like a sequel announcement, like in short order. Um, this would be one of those things where like it wouldn't surprise me if like two weeks after the movie comes out, they're like and the sequel comes out in 2025. Mm -hmm. um but uh yeah so this is poised to be a huge huge hit okay so i'm sure we'll talk about that more next week um ryan i know we're running a little long but matthew vaughn the director behind movies like kick-ass and the kingsman franchise has been uh, doing i think he's been making the rounds on some podcasts and stuff and uh there was one uh i guess little story that that was broken out from his appearance there uh based on one of his comments that i want to talk to you about which is that he was talking about what he would do with the future of Star Wars, like what he thinks the future of Star Wars uh, might be. He, I think he's been attached to uh, or rumored for Star Wars movies in various capacities over the years. Um, but I'll just read his comments here. For me, doing a Star Wars movie is to play with the characters I love. If they said to me they'd reboot Star Wars and actually have Luke Skywalker, Solo, and Vader and do your version of it, Everyone would say you're an idiot to try, but that would excite me. Star Wars is the Skywalker family, and that's where I think they've gone wrong. They've forgot. They've done brilliantly in TV, but it needs an epic new film. That's what I would do, i.e. reboot Luke. 
everyone is going to go batshit crazy, but let's bring it on. So that's just him, you know, speculating. Obviously, he doesn't know anything about the the true plans at, at Lucasfilm or whatever. <clears throat> but uh, I just wanted to, to bring this up with you because I know you're obviously a massive Star Wars fan. And I, I wonder what you think about the idea of like a reboot. Like we've talked a lot about Disney's plans and these announced movies and like um, the Dave Filoni movie and like the uh, James Mangold movie that's going to go thousands of years back in time and all that kind of stuff. And and the the uh, the thing that I've been hammering for years on this podcast and in life and to anyone who will listen is like, let Star Wars be an expansive thing. Like get away from the Skywalkers, just tell new stories. This universe is so expansive. There's so much you can do with it. And Disney just kind of doesn't, feel like it's super interested in in doing that um but i wonder what you think about these uh, this idea of like just a straight reboot of the skywalker saga at this point is that something you'd be interested in seeing uh hell no um i uh there's the Moneyball. there's this line that philip seymour hoffman delivers to brad pitt's character he's like i fundamentally disagree with you and like he just like like is berating brad pitt's character for like just like this out of frustration and i feel that way like and by the way i love matthew bond's movies generally speaking so like but yeah no this is i disagree with this like fundamentally disagree with this like i think especially if you look at what's worked with star wars like star wars rebels being very successful the mandalorian not leaning on characters we were familiar with becoming a success through its first two seasons before luke skywalker showed up like um I think even like the sequel trilogy, the stuff that worked very well, yes, you had the old characters there, but I think like you, if you go and you look at younger people, they love Ray. They love, like they embrace these characters. They embrace Kylo Ren. So like, and, and yeah, like star Wars is a gigantic expansive universe. Like, you know, you can tell stories that don't need to involve these characters and, and audiences have, have shown up and said, we will embrace that. Uh, Rogue One being another good example. Like, yes, it's tied to things we know, but it's not necessarily like predicated on those same four characters. So, mm-hmm. no. And I also think like the one thing I love about The Force Awakens is that like people sort of criticized it for being like a pseudo remake of A New Hope. And, and I push back against that a little bit, but it was close enough that like remaking it would feel like extra ridiculous at this point. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, I just, <laughs> I just, I, I, I kind of, sort of see what he's trying to say that like why is it that like other characters can be sort of like you know revisited in new ways and these ones are so sacred that they can't be um star wars is a very unique situation that way and i just i just have no i i have interest in seeing star wars stuff till the day that i die yeah i don't want to see like anything necessarily remade uh because i just don't think that's necessary Okay, yeah, I want to read this um, this selection from Jeremy Mathai uh, at Slashfilm wrote up this uh, these comments. And in his article, he says, uh, as long as the franchise can conceivably loop back around to the original trilogy characters, no matter how forced or contrived it feels, it seems clear that the creatives in charge will find any excuse to do so. That worked out reasonably okay with the sequel trilogy, which was originally planned as a series of farewells to franchise legends Harrison Ford, Mark Hamill, and Carrie Fisher. But once that wrapped up the way it did, it should have given the decision makers carte blanche to move the franchise forward and tell brand new stories that's not exactly what happened to say the least um so i i agree with that and i think you know disney has just shown like this reticence to move beyond the iconography that they established uh, that that fox frankly established all those years ago um and so you know will they you know there's 
talk of uh, Taika's Star Wars movie. And like we mentioned, the James Mangold thing and all these projects that have been announced. But, uh, you know, it's still years away from happening if if any of that ever comes to fruition at all. There have already obviously been several Star Wars projects that have been announced that never came to pass. So we'll see if Disney actually has the, the uh, I don't know, lack of cowardice to move out of the shadow of, you know, what has worked so well in the past. But um, but yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm glad to hear Ryan that, that you're not interested in uh, retreading those stories again or, or putting a new coat of paint on on the um, the fundamentals that obviously work because um, uh, you know I feel like you and I are on somewhat different spectrums in terms of Star Wars fandom. Yes, um, but it seems like we we agree on, on that front at least. So that's, well, that's and I would point, point to anyone who thinks this is the way to go i would point to solo a star wars story and i know people love that movie and that's fine it commercially did not work like you can i don't care like even if that budget had been lower that's not what you want from a star wars movie in terms of commercial prospects so like disney should learn at that point like that would be the fool's way to go um, so I don't know. I, I'll just leave it at that, but okay. <laughs> all right. Yeah. I think that's going to do it for today's episode. Um, thank you all again for sticking with me, uh, at the, the back half of last week. I apologize for that. Um, you can find more about all the stories that we mentioned on today's show at slashfilm.com and linked inside the show notes for this episode. The slash film show is published two times a week, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please subscribe to our newsletter send your feedback questions comments concerns and mailback topics to us at bpearson at slashfilm.com please leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air don't forget to rate and review the show on apple Podcasts or spotify tell your friends spread the word thanks for listening and we will talk to you next time